Hello and welcome to Lil Yo Pod, the all things Yosemite podcast. I'm Laura Jackson, and on today's episode, we are going to continue exploring the Awani Hotel, the luxury hotel in Yosemite Valley. This is the second of a three-part series on the building, and today we are going to be talking about the architecture and the construction of the hotel. This is an amazing part of the story and a true testament to the general attitude of optimism during that time. Get ready for some innovative and groundbreaking ideas as we dive into the logistics that brought the Awani Hotel from concept to reality. Last time on the podcast, we were talking about why the hotel was built as an effort to bring wealthy and influential people into the national parks. Stephen Mather, the first director of the Park Service, had a grand vision of making the national parks top destinations for every vacationing family in America. The 1920s were an exciting time in the United States, and Yosemite was about to take on the massive project of building the finest luxury hotel in all of the national parks under the direction of Donald Tresseter, the president of the newly formed Yosemite Park and Curry Company. After selecting the site for the hotel, a sunny spot under the Royal Arches on the northeast side of Yosemite Valley, the task of selecting an architect was next. This was probably one of the most important decisions in the entire process. The architect chosen was a man named Gilbert Stanley Underwood, and he was only 35 years old when he took on the project for the yet-to-be-named hotel. Underwood had several lodges in other national parks and numerous railroad depots and post offices to his name and had established his own architectural firm in Los Angeles. He was so dedicated to the Yosemite project that he offered to move his entire office to the area when concerns began to surface because he would be too far away to properly oversee the construction. Perhaps it was that level of commitment that sealed him for the project because in 1925, Underwood signed on with the YPCC and started drawing plans for the hotel. Underwood was known for his ability to design buildings to complement a surrounding area. The point of this hotel was to amplify the incredible scenery of Yosemite and to almost become a part of it rather than to stand separately from it. This type of architecture was known as rustic architecture or parkitecture and used native material for the building as well as unique designs that were meant to mimic the natural landscape. This type of architecture was also heavily influenced by the arts and crafts movement of the early 20th century, which valued traditional style craftsmanship over the increasing mass production of goods. Underwood was expected to create a totally original building for this cause, the likes of which had never been seen before. The massive structure was expected to be several stories high, with 100 guest rooms, each with private baths, and a dining room that could seat up to 1,000 people. Oh yes, and the most important factor of all, the building had to be fireproof. Fireproof, people, in 1925. Underwood was given a budget of $525,000, one year to drop the blueprints and make all the necessary arrangements, and when construction began in August of 1926, the anticipated opening day for the hotel was to be Christmas Day of 1926. Everything in a national park is protected, 
even granite boulders. So every piece of granite used in the hotel, in fact, every piece of building material for the hotel had to be brought in from outside the park boundaries by truck and not the semi trucks we are familiar with today. The flatbed trucks used in 1926 were only a little bit larger than today's heavy duty pickups and there was a constant stream of trucks bringing in material every day during construction. 5,000 tons of concrete and granite, 1,000 tons of steel, and 30,000 feet of timber. The task was daunting at best. The company struggled to find a contractor that would agree to the parameters of the building, and they eventually bypassed the bidding process to hire a man named James McLaughlin, who came with, quote, enthusiastic endorsements. McLaughlin was known for completing projects on time and under budget, and he may have achieved just that had the plans for the Awani stayed consistent. As it was, the plans were constantly being revised and more requests and considerations were being made. Underwood struggled to keep up with the changes which delayed construction and pushed opening day further and further away. The building had been redesigned so many times that it ended up being 20% larger than the original plans and the costs were adding up. McLaughlin, the contractor, was becoming so frustrated with Underwood and the Yosemite Park and Curry Company that he threatened to pull out of the job, complaining to Tressiter that, quote, it is impossible to complete the construction of the Iwani Hotel under the chaotic conditions created by the owners and their agents. Already, the changes in plans have made a structure so completely different in character that it is no longer within any contract we have with you, end quote. McLaughlin stayed on, however, after the YPCC threatened to sue him for damages if he abandoned the project. And soon after that, he contracted a mysterious illness and stayed away from the site through the remainder of construction. Basically, there was a lot of contention among those responsible for building the Awani, and many relationships were destroyed following its completion. Still, in spite of all that, the hotel opened on July 14, 1927, less than one year after construction began, and it came in at $1.2 million, which still seems like an incredible accomplishment to me, especially considering that a lot of the construction took place in the winter. Not to mention, Underwood figured out a way to make the building structurally fire-resistant as required while still maintaining the Awani's rustic environmental aesthetic. If you've never seen the Awani before, let me describe it to you. The exterior of the building is exquisite. The hotel is six stories high with massive stacked granite boulder columns on every side of the building, intersected by what appear to be redwood siding, with turquoise trim and shutters around the windows. The bones of the building are steel encased in concrete, and here's the fact of the podcast. The exterior redwood that you see is actually a facade. It is concrete poured into molds of rough sawn wood and stained with acid and iron oxide to give it the cinnamon color of redwood trees. If you visit the Awani today, you can actually see where the stain has faded in some places and the pale concrete now shows through. 
Closer inspection of the beams and the siding also reveals a repeating wood grain pattern as the same mold was used throughout the building. I think it's safe to say that Underwood is an architectural genius even if he was difficult to work with. It was his creativity and attention to detail that make the Awani one of the most impressive and significant structures in the world. Every decision he made for the building was careful and precise. The boulder columns were designed in such a way as to mimic the way the boulders piled up against the valley walls, and the sugar pine logs on the exterior of the dining room run straight up and seem to continue into the sequoia trees on the other side of the building. It is extraordinary when you take the time to notice all of these features. Even the shape of the building is totally unique. It's shaped like a Y with a slight bend on each arm, allowing every room in the Awani to receive natural sunlight and unobstructed views of the sites of Yosemite. Even though the Awani was considered a complete masterpiece of architecture and an engineering marvel for its time, Underwood was promptly dismissed from the Yosemite Park and Curry Company shortly after the building was completed. He was supposed to stay on to design the accompanying cottage buildings, but that project was given to a different architect, and while they are nice, they are certainly not noted for their originality. But don't worry, Underwood did alright for himself. He continued designing hotels and lodges and became one of the most prolific architects in American history. He even designed the equally impressive Timberline Lodge at the foot of Mount Hood near Portland, Oregon, what would one day be used for the exterior shots of Stanley Kubrick's film The Shining. Coincidence? Still, even with all of that attention to detail and careful planning, Underwood did miss something huge. Now, the first time I visited the Iwani Hotel, I remember something seeming really odd with the building at first. I almost felt like I was arriving by way of some secret employee entrance because the first thing I noticed was the loading dock where all the kitchen goods come in and the garbage goes out. It is an unsightly side of any building and always in the back, out of view of the public. Yet there it was, hidden conspicuously by a wooden fence. Why on earth, I thought, would they put the loading dock near the entrance of the building? In fact, the whole entryway seemed like a weird back way. It was dark. The path into the building was unremarkable. It was a, it's a long carpeted wooden walkway guiding your way to the front doors, which I don't think you'd be able to find if it didn't have the red carpet there. I guessed maybe the entrance was intentionally left ambiguous, perhaps so that the rest of the building would seem more impressive. I wouldn't have actually been too far off in this assumption, although I was incorrect, because optical illusions were used in designing other parts of the building to make some spaces appear more impressive in size. The elevator lobby, for instance, has a massive fireplace that you can stand up in made from huge pieces of the stone jasper, giving the illusion that the lobby was much smaller than it was so that when the guests entered the adjacent dining room, it seemed impossibly huge. But, clever as he was, Underwood did not foresee the problem that would present itself as a major design flaw a mere 10 days before the Awani opened. You see, the entrance to the building has the look and feel of the back of the building because it is the back of the building. The original design had the entrance on the southeast side of the building where the lounge area and lawn are today. What is now the Awani Bar was the original porte cochere the covered parking area where guests would park and unload their luggage when they arrived. 
I don't know if it was because automobiles were still relatively new and so designing spaces around them was not entirely considered, but when service vehicles arrived to unload furniture and interior decor, it was soon discovered that there was a severe lack of ventilation and exhaust fumes filled the entire first floor of the building, extending all the way to the dining room. So with 10 days to go before opening day, enough lumber was collected and milled to construct the covered walkway and the porte cochere on the backside of the building. One builder recalled the chaos leading up to opening day, stating that the carpenters were steps ahead of the painters and the painters were applying their final coat of paint when the first guests arrived. And the first guest to sign the guest register on that momentous day was Mr. Stephen T. Mather himself. His dream had come to fruition. Yes. Yosemite had its grand hotel at last, and despite all of the headaches, shattered professional relationships, and chaos, it was a true masterpiece and has proven timeless as is evidenced by the masses of people that still make a stop at the Awani a part of their Yosemite experience. It holds just as much intrigue and admiration today as it did 93 years ago when it opened its doors in 1927. This concludes part two of the Iwani Hotel. Join me next time as I dive into the interior design of the building and all the little secrets that make that aspect of the Iwani so fun and so special and probably my favorite part of the hotel. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Little Yo Pod. If you like this podcast, please consider joining the Little Yo Pod Patreon community where I post videos of all kinds of things Yosemite and non-Yosemite related. Patreon is a monthly subscription where you get bonus material for supporting an artist's work and memberships start at just $3 a month. But if you're unsure if I'm worth that much, there are also videos I have listed for free that you can check out there as well. But, you know, if you have a tiny bit of cash and want to support the podcast, just like the people who supported the national parks in the early years, please consider joining the Little Yo Pod Patreon community. I will include a link in the show notes, but you can also contact me on the Little Yo Pod Facebook page, Instagram or Twitter, or send an email to littleyopod at gmail.com for more information. This week's fun fact, the Awani Bar, what was the intended covered parking area, did not serve alcohol until it was converted to a lounge called the Indian Room in 1950. The first bar to open in the hotel was on the mezzanine level and was converted from a ladies-only dining room. The hotel didn't officially start serving liquor until 1933 because it opened during Prohibition, and although it is undocumented, there are sneaking suspicions that the Awani was not what one would call totally dry during that time. Actually, I heard this from someone else, and I can't find evidence of it anywhere, so if anyone knows if this is true, I would love to hear from them. So outside of the sweet shop, uh, in the registration lobby, or what used to be the soda shop, there is a lighting fixture with what appears to be a bunch of grapes hanging from it. And the rumor is that this was a secret signal that the establishment served wine or liquor during Prohibition. The fixture is an outlier from the others in its design, and I would love to believe that was the reason, but I cannot find confirmation of it anywhere. So... Yeah, if you know something, if you're like a total prohibition expert, please contact me and let me know so I can confirm it. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Little Yo Pod. I'm Laura Jackson. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful day.